Let's open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I want to continue in what we considered last Sunday. Why we believe the Bible is the Word of God. Not why we believe the King James translation of the Bible is the proper English translation that God has blessed and shown by His divine approval to be his, his word in English in the year 2001, not to appeal to all those internal testimonies of the Bible that declare its incredible accuracy and that arguments of doctrine can and should be made from even single letters and verb tenses because we've done both of those before. We want to back up and do a study of what needs to come before both of those, and that is, is the Bible God's word? Is the Bible written by God, and was it sent by God to tell us divine truth, or is it some other book? Or has God not written to man at all, and the Bible, along with the Koran and the Hindu Vedas, and other books are simply man's ideas put down on paper, and superstition has caused them to believe that it's God's Word? We must answer that question. We want to do it. And the Bible wants us to answer that question. Right. God is not afraid of examination. I want you to know that. God wants examination to be made. He wants comparisons to be made because He is superior to even the imagination of men, let alone the fact that there are no other gods. He's looked for other gods. He wishes He could find another god. He created the best that He could and is sending that one to an eternity in hell His name was Lucifer. We now know him as Satan, the great dragon, the old serpent, and the devil. That's the most powerful creature he ever made. He's looked for other gods, but he cannot find any. And so look what he tells us, even in the New Testament, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 21. And this is a verse that we ought to always remember. It's short. It's easy to memorize. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21, prove all things. Prove all things. Did you know that Christianity is a reasonable religion? And the God of Christianity says, prove all things. It's too bad all other religions didn't always ask for their followers to prove whether what they're teaching is the truth or not, but the Bible does. Prove all things. It doesn't say here, believe all things, accept all things, presume all things. It says, prove all things. So what we want to do is prove that the Bible was written by God. And hold fast that which is good. In your proving process, when you find something that isn't good, it is to be discarded. Throw it away. Get rid of it. And it's too bad that in America, we aren't doing enough of that. Pulpits aren't teaching enough, and hearers aren't doing it enough to prove all things, to throw away everything that doesn't match up with God's Word, and to hold fast that which is good. Do you understand how much is included in this one little verse? Hold it. Don't let it go. And hold it fast, which is an older English word for holding it tight so that it can't slip away. We should prove everything and hold tightly onto everything that matches up with God's Word and that is good and proper and true and right. Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. This is our mandate from the God of heaven and from His apostles. The Apostle Paul commanded this just like he commanded other statements to the church at Thessalonica that we can read right here around it. It tells us to rejoice evermore, to pray without ceasing, to abstain from all appearance of evil, but it tells us to prove all things. Turn back to Isaiah 41, where I want you to see this again. We looked at this one last Sunday, but I have come to love this verse, and I hope that you will also, because he's challenging the world. He's daring us all to try to prove him wrong. Because he knows the answer to any diligent inquiry into whether the Bible was written by himself or whether he is the true and living God. Isaiah 41 and verse 21. Listen to him. This is our Lord. Produce your cause, saith the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, saith the King of Jacob. And I'm going to stop there this morning. 
Last week we went further. But I want you to remember, he challenges us, produce your cause. Bring forth your strong reasons. Because he is Lord, and we'll find that out if we'll make an inquiry. But you know what? Most people are raised. Little Buddhists become big Buddhists. Little Hindus become big Hindus. Little Muslims become big Muslims because none of them spend any effort ever proving whether their religion is true or not. Let us never be guilty of such a weak approach to our faith. The Bible commands us to prove all things. Because they are usually born in a nation where that religion is the national religion, there is so much weight and emphasis against ever making an inquiry or an examination of that religion because the cost would be enormous. You would have to go against your national religion. You would have to go against your family and relatives. You would have to go against your educational system. You would have to leave your country. You don't convert from Islam to Christianity and remain in an Islamic country. Sorry, it's not allowed. You're a dead man. You can go on the Internet and find yourself some anonymous testimonies of Muslims who did what I'm talking about this morning and compared the Quran to the Bible and came to a knowledge of Jesus Christ as Lord and submitted to him and to the word of God and they had to leave their countries and they don't dare put those testimonies on the internet with a name or an address. They don't do that. So little Hindus become big Hindus. Now, in our church, we don't want little Christians becoming big Christians without doing some proving. Amen. Amen. You know, if someone were to hear the way we teach and the way we believe, they say we're bordering on being a cult. If we're a cult, then why are we the only ones that stress so much on the people in the PU having the Word of God in their hands and reading it and checking out everything that comes out of this pulpit by the Word of God? Right. That's no cult. That's no blind faith. I don't want you to have blind faith. And I'm not even talking about anything that I would say. Everything that I say comes from the mouth of a liar. I am talking about what God said. Right. And when we read His Word, He wants us to prove His Word. Is there enough evidence that God truly wrote the Bible? And I believe there's plenty of evidence, and I want to give you some of that. Amen. We are Bible Christians. Amen. We do not base our Christianity on any man, on any creed, on any confession, any seminary, any tradition. It is all based in the Bible, so we're Bible Christians. We practice Christianity the way the Bible describes it. That's what we want to do. And if someone ever shows us something, or God shows us something, that is not in the Bible, we are going to change. And you all know that we have changed in the past, and we will change in the future as God shows us anything from the Bible. Because our Christianity is only as good as it can be found in the Bible. If we can't find it, it doesn't matter how many other people do it. It doesn't matter how good it feels. It doesn't matter how pretty it is. It's worthless. And worse than worthless. Because it's violating what God has given us. We must go back to the Bible. We are Bible Christians. We believe God wrote the Bible to reveal himself, to reveal his son Jesus Christ, because without the Bible, we would know nothing about Jesus Christ, except there had been a historical figure named Jesus. But you'd have to do diligent inquisition to find those facts if it weren't for the Bible that brings him to the forefront of the world because guess what? You hold in your hands a bestseller. Did you know that it was a bestseller this year and that it was last year and that it will be next year and that it was 1,000 years ago and that it was 1,644 years ago? It was the bestseller. That's part of its proof. It has survived. Wait till you see the opposition that's been made against the Word of God. Now, this is not a book that's advertised with lots of money spent on advertising it for purchase. True. In fact, all the efforts about the Bible are made against it. Right. They've burned thousands of them through the, for the last 2,000 years. It's ridiculed today in all our institutions of higher learning. Right. You can't read it in public schools. And why it just keeps on selling. May God be praised for the glory of his word. We must put our religion to a test. There's many more verses that can be raised, but I hope you'll remember, prove 
all things. Hold fast that which is good. That is our mandate from an apostle, and that's what we do in this church. May God bless us to do it even better in the future. We're not dealing with the King James Version issue. We're back in front of that. We're not dealing with the internal accuracy of the Bible. We're back before that. We're we're asking the question, did God write the Bible? Once we establish the fact that God wrote the Bible, then we can believe everything within it that it declares about itself. Everything in it that it declares about us, about the universe. And then we can obey it because we can know that every commandment in it was written there by God, not by men who thought they had a better idea. Right. What is the first great proof? We want to quickly get right into what's the first great proof because I want you to remember this when if you ever meet with a skeptic or you yourself want to remind yourself of why we believe the Bible to have been written by God, what is the first great proof? Fulfilled prophecy. The Bible is the only book that declares many, many, thousands of prophecies, the vast majority of which have all been fulfilled. No other book dares do that. The Muslims know there are no prophecies in the Koran. Do you know why there are no prophecies in the Koran? They didn't dare put prophecies in the Koran. Listen, brother, when you make a prophecy, you hang yourself out to be condemned as a liar. Do you all know what happened in 1843? A man named William Miller got himself a following in this country called the Adventists and the Millerites. He had done some reading in Daniel chapter 8 without a whole lot of understanding. And he came to the conclusion that Jesus Christ was coming back in the year 1843. And so on April 7th, 1843, he called all Adventists to sell their possessions and to assemble in their homes and prayerfully wait for the arrival of Jesus Christ. He didn't come. But people are superstitious and they're gullible to believe anything. So he moved his date to September of the same year, 1843. He traveled all over this country. He preached everywhere, multiple sermons per day. It's called the Adventist movement. Before William Miller, there was no such thing as an Adventist. They they gathered again. The Lord didn't come. He tried March 21st of the year 1844. The Lord didn't come. Then he said, I have corrected all my mistakes. We have it now. It's October 22nd, 1844. So they sold their possessions, thousands of Adventists across this country, and gathered for the Lord to come. And he didn't come. And in Adventist terminology, it's called the Great Disappointment. <laughs> you know, we, we talk about the Great Awakening of George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards in New England 224 years ago, but this was called the Great Disappointment. And guess what? The Adventist movement still lives. Right. Several million following a man who didn't know his Bible and didn't know the future, and God wasn't with him nor directing him, who presumed to speak in the words of a prophet. And do you know what we looked at last Lord's Day? Do you remember Deuteronomy chapter 18? If a prophet, even if he speaks in my name, says something and it does not come to pass, do not be afraid of that prophet, and if he is speaking any other religion, then he ought to be put to death. Deuteronomy 18, verses 20 through 22. That's what we looked at last Lord's Day. Now, I went through that little history of William Miller because I want you to realize how many men have had a chance to see the truth and did not want it. They loved Adventism more than they did truth because he was exposed as a liar. I don't care if his heart was sincere or not. That doesn't matter. He still was lying. Jesus Christ was not coming and did not come. And nor are we ever to make prognostications like that. Bible prophecy is not given for us to speculate about the future. Bible prophecy was given so that when the thing comes to pass, we can know that the book we have was written by God. And what a difference that makes. Whenever you hear my fury against futurism in this country, premillennial schemes of prophecy... The reason is, it destroys the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. It steals from my Savior by taking the prophecies of our Lord and other prophecies and throwing them way out in the future so that, the which 95% of them have been all fulfilled over the last 2,000 years. Right. 
And it was understood that way until the last 150 years when men bought in to the futuristic school of Bible interpretation of prophecy. But by sticking them all out in the future, they steal from the glory of Jesus Christ because Jesus said, I tell you these things before they come to pass, so that when they come to pass, you will believe that I am He. And they have stolen from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why I get angry about it. Because I want to defend the Lord because He gave prophecy for us to prove that He indeed was the Messiah. It is a faith-destroying consequence of futuristic interpretation of prophecy. It destroys men's faith because there are so many glorious fulfillments of what Jesus prophesied would come to pass. Satan can tell the future once in a while. Do you know when he can tell the future? When God lets him. Do you know how often he does it? Just once in a while. Do you remember Gene Dixon? Oh, there was such a great deal made about Gene Dixon in the early 60s who warned the White House a couple of days before our president, John F. Kennedy, went to Dallas that he would, well, she didn't know if he was going to die or not. She just saw a black cloud hanging over Dallas where he was going to be. And, you know, once he was assassinated in Dallas, they put those that vague prophecy together with the fact, and they said, Gene Dixon's a prophet. Well, Gene Dixon prophesied for the next 20 years before she died, and nothing. nothing. They didn't come to pass. They didn't come to pass. And see, what? remember, Deuteronomy 18, verses 20 through 22, if someone presumes to speak a word of prophecy and it doesn't come to pass, don't be afraid of that person. It's not from me. They don't know the future. And if we lived in a country that totally was based on God's word, it would be a capital offense because the effort to take people away from the word of God is a capital offense in God's opinion. Now, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that's God's opinion. That's what the Bible teaches if you read Deuteronomy 18. The Jehovah's Witnesses are one of the fastest growing religions in the world. Charles Taze Russell that founded them in in the the mid-1800s has so many prophecies of Jesus Christ's coming that never happened. They're too numerous to list. There are websites that scroll on page after page after page of the dates that Charles Taze Russell and his followers picked for Jesus Christ to come. His first one was 1874. Do you know how he got his? People follow this religion. It's incredible. You know, why not follow Donald Duck? I'm serious, and I'm not... Listen, go to a website and just plug in Charles Taze Russell, end of the world. Those words, and watch what it comes back with. Just, just take a look at it. 18, do you know where he got them from? He would go to Egypt and take out his tape measure and measure the Great Pyramid that's in Gaza. And from his measurements of the Great Pyramid, he would calculate when Jesus Christ had to come back. He did that over and over and over again. He said numerous times the Lord would come before he would die. Well, he's not here today. Did the Lord forget us? Did the Lord come? Or was he a fraud? And look at the religion just goes on, growing exponentially around the world. Why? Jesus told us why. Because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. Do you know what Jesus said? Men love lies. Why do they love lies? There's two reasons. One, we have a deceitful heart that prefers lies to truth. Two, there's there's an invisible spirit in this room and every room with his emissaries called demons that promote lies at all times. And so lies are believed by the majority of the human race, and if it wasn't for God to lift the scales off our eyes and to change our heart and to bring us the truth by His Word, we would believe those lies as aggressively, if not more so, than anyone. It is all by God's grace. It is no personal making fun of Charles Taze Russell from Jonathan Crosby. It is absolute ridicule of his stupid religion. Amen. You say, is that scriptural? Well, I, can, I remember Elijah when he once gathered around an altar where there were 450 right. prophets of Baal. And all those prophets of Baal were out there slashing themselves with knives and the blood was running and they were just howling like wolves toward heaven waiting for Baal to come down and light this sacrifice on their altar because, see, Elijah wanted to prove God's religion. Amen. He wanted to prove all things. Amen. And so he said, let's build an altar. The God that answers by fire, let him be the true God. 
Well, there were 450 preachers for Baal, and there was one for the Lord God. And he let them have all day. He let them go first. Isn't that generous to let the prophets of Baal go first? They had all day long, and they're slashing themselves, and they're up on top of their altar, and they're howling and screaming, and there's Elijah over there. What's he saying to them? Is he praying for them? What's he saying? Yet a little louder. Your God may be sleeping right now. He may be on a long journey and he can't hear you, so cry a little louder. And so they slash themselves and cry a little louder. But God didn't come. That is Bible ridicule of false religion. Jesus Christ ridiculed those Pharisees. He called them whited sepulchers, serpents. How shall ye escape the damnation of hell? The Apostle Paul called it a bewitching to leave anything but the truth of the gospel. It is not personal except that we're defending a personal God who has written and the person of his son, Jesus Christ, that we will defend and we will ridicule those who want to attack him. Why do I want to attack Charles Taze Russell? Because he says that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is only a God, not Jehovah God. Well, my Lord Jesus Christ said before Abraham was, I am. Amen. My Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, we're going to defend the Lord Jesus Christ, and that man has exposed himself. You don't need to be intelligent to find the truth. God needs to open your heart. Amen. And then you need to prove all things by obeying His commandment. Right. Because all you have, go home. Any search engine will do. Do it. See all the lists of Charles Taze Russell and all their prophecies. They've got them right down to right now. They've had several fail in the last four years. They haven't quit. They don't talk about the past ones, but they haven't quit. But there's people that have looked into all their literature and given you the documentation for you to see how many have wanted to be prophets. But if God doesn't give a man the knowledge of the future, it is not known. And that's why when we see the prophecies fulfilled in the Word of God, we know that God wrote the Bible. Amen. Look at Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46. Now, we didn't read the rest of 41, and we didn't go to 42, we didn't go to 44, we didn't go to 48 because we did that last Sunday. Remember all those passages where God said, Try me, I'm the Lord, there is no other God. And the way that you can prove it is to see that I'm the only one that can tell events before they come to pass. And I'm the only one with the power to say that something is going to happen and then make it happen. But here's one that I didn't put in last Sunday that I want to give you this Sunday. Isaiah 46, and it's about Cyrus the Persian taking the city of Babylon. Isaiah 46 and verse 9. You can know that it's about Cyrus by just reading its context, which we don't have time for this morning right now. Isaiah 46, 9, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executeth my counsel from a far country. Yea, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. There's the testimony of God. Do you like those verses? What do those verses do to a regenerate heart? Do they cause your heart to swell? In studying in the privacy of my office and finding verses like that, I just swell up with desire to find more and to read them again and to love them and to polish up every little phrase of those statements because God is daring you to compare them to anyone else because no one else can declare the end from the beginning. You'll notice verse 9 does not end with a period, it ends with a comma, because the clauses of verse 10 are explaining the fact that there is no God like me from verse 9, because no God can declare the end from the beginning like the God of the Bible does. And he did it in the Bible so that we could know that he wrote the Bible. God told us that fulfilled prophecy is the first great evidence of his existence and of his word. Fulfilled prophecy. Turn to John 13. And we did look at this one last Sunday, but you must remember this. John chapter 13. This is so important to remember why God gave prophecy. Now, we already saw it there in Isaiah 46. 
He gave prophecy to prove that he is God and there is no other. But let's see it again in the New Testament why Jesus made prophecies. This prophecy is about Judas Iscariot, John 13, 19. Now I tell you before it come. John 13, 19, Jesus speaking. It's in the red writing for those of you with a red letter edition Bible. Now I tell you before it come that before it come you can sit around and speculate as to the details of the fulfillment of this prophecy. No, it doesn't say that at all. It says, Now I tell you before it come that when it is come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. Notice, there was nothing for them to do while it was an unfulfilled prophecy. When it was fulfilled, then they had something to work with. And what would it give them? You will know that I am he. The disciples were still confused about the true identity of Jesus Christ. At times, God would give them a revelation from heaven, and Peter would make some glorious statement, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. At other times, he would say, I'm going to Jerusalem to be crucified, according to the testimony of all the scriptures. And they'd say, Lord, no way. I'm not going to let that happen to you. Confused. And so he, he starts giving them prophecies like the prophecy about Judas so that when they saw it, they would realize, wow, our Lord told us that it was going to be Judas and we didn't have a clue that it was Judas. They were so far from thinking it was Judas, Peter, James, and John thought it was themselves. I said all that last Sunday, but I don't want you to forget this verse. This is why we have prophecy so that when it comes to pass, we know that God said it Amen. and that God wrote it. The destruction of Jerusalem occurred in 70 A.D. Everyone knows that it occurred in 70 A.D. The records of the Roman government tell us it occurred in 70 A.D. There were New Testament manuscripts before 70 A.D. that had records of Matthew chapter 24 where Jesus Christ, and Mark 13 and Luke 21 where Jesus Christ described in rather plain detail what the destruction of Jerusalem was going to be like. And he said, All these things shall come to pass on this generation. And lo and behold, they came to pass on that generation. Amen. If you were to take the works of Josephus, who was a Jewish general and had no interest in Jesus Christ of Nazareth, he recorded the events day by day because he was the historian for the Roman government and a translator for Titus, who stood there outside the walls of Jerusalem before they pulled it apart stone from stone. He recorded the destruction of Jerusalem in graphic detail. And if you read that account in the Wars of the Jews and compare it to Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, you will be amazed. Because there you will see the fulfillment of everything Jesus said. Jesus, the, the, listen, Herod the Great had added to the temple that Zerubbabel had built and added his own palaces to it until it was one of the wonders of the world in Jerusalem. The disciples brought Jesus and said, this is Matthew 24, Lord, look at this thing, isn't it beautiful? And Jesus said, don't get too excited about this building because I'm going to tear it apart stone by stone and so the two stones aren't remaining together. Right. And then he went on to explain when that was going to happen. And it was going to happen upon that generation. Amen. He described armies coming that would circle the city. He described how horrible it was going to be that there would, be, there would never have been tribulation like that in the history of the world, nor would there be tribulation like that to follow right. the destruction of Jerusalem. Women ate their children in the destruction of Jerusalem, fulfilling the prophecies all the way back from De Deuteronomy chapters 28. Josephus writes about the women that ate their children. He knew their names. He puts their names in his history. It's in the wars of the Jews. Jesus wrote of that. We have manuscripts and know that Matthew 24 was written before 70 A.D. There's a fulfilled prophecy. It was first of all foretold, though, 500 years earlier right. in the book of Daniel when we read about the desolation of Jerusalem going to take place after Messiah the Prince is cut off. Daniel wrote about it long before. Many men have said that a simple study of Matthew chapter 24 in the light of the history historian Josephus is enough to convince you that God wrote the Bible Amen. because Josephus was not a Christian. Josephus was a Jew. He would have no... Do you, do you know what kind of a historian God chose for this job? A Christ-hating Jew wrote the history of the destruction of Jerusalem and used words that you would swear had been chosen by Jesus Christ himself to fulfill his prophecy. They were. Right. Because it's what actually happened. 
Now, somebody will say, so you believe in studying history? Yes, any history that confirms the word of God ought to be studied. Any other history is really quite worthless. Right. We don't really care who discovered Bolivia. It's not going to help you now nor your children later. But if you can learn about the destruction of Jerusalem by reading Josephus and the, and the wars of the Jews, you will see the word of God confirmed and Jesus Christ lifted up so high because Jesus said, that his prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem would be preached in all the world for a witness. Then the end would come. He wanted that record out there to the whole Gentile world before he destroyed the city of Jerusalem, and it was out there before he destroyed that city. Amen. Turn to Daniel chapter 9. Though, let's look at a prophecy, in, in a particular prophecy. Daniel is one of the most important books to prove that God wrote the Bible. Right. Daniel gave us some prophecies that are too plain to miss. And so great efforts have been made to prove that Daniel was written after the events. <laughs> great efforts. Because even skeptics know that if they can't handle Daniel, they might as well just throw in the towel, the Bible was written by God. There's too many prophecies in Daniel. And so they've come up with the theory that it was written in about 160 B.C., but that still won't do it. Still won't do it because he's got prophecies extending right past 160. But it wasn't written in 160. It was written in 450, and the evidence is insurmountable. And every time, you know, do we believe in archaeology? Yeah? We can be thankful for archaeology because everything they find in the Middle East, guess what it does? It confirms the Word of God more. They just keep on finding things that confirm the Word of God. Oh, there's so much, brethren. There is so much. Like the destruction of Jericho. They have radiocarbon dated the destruction of Jericho to within a 13-year range. But that 13-year range includes the dating that we have from simply reading our Old Testaments. When they look at the re remains of Jericho that are under dirt that they've dug up, the walls are all flat all the way around except for one small section. Now, does all that make sense to you? Amen. They didn't discover anything. They confirmed something. They confirmed what we've known all along. The nation of Israel walked around that city one time a day for six days and seven times on the seventh day. And on the seventh time around on the seventh day, they shouted and the walls fell down. Right. Amen. Except that part of the wall where Rahab and her family lived. Right. And so they have found that. Bless their hearts. We're thankful. They've confirmed the word of God. And you know what? Most of the people finding those things still don't believe. Right. Right. They just think they're doing something noble for mankind by finding ancient cities. And we read of something like that, and we get excited because it's the Word of God confirmed one more time, and we want to punch the air and say, Thank you, Lord, Amen. for showing us one more time what a great God you are, and that you did do this. And everything we read in the Old Testament is true. Even something as strange as marching around a city and having the walls fall down. Daniel chapter 9, this is the, 70, the prophecy of 70 weeks. Verse 24, Daniel 9, 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Seventy weeks. Now you go into this a little further. Tonight we do, we do not have time right now to fully exhaust the, the prophecy of 70 weeks. Seventy weeks, that is 490 days. But by reading here, you can find out that one day stands for a year, as it does in several other of Daniel's prophecies. 490 years are represented by this 70 weeks prophecy. It tells us in verse that it'll take seven of those weeks in the middle of verse 25, seven weeks to build the temple, 62 weeks unto Messiah the Prince, and then Jesus Christ, the Messiah the Prince, will be cut off in the midst of the 70th week. 490 years. With, it, look at this prophecy. We are given a prophecy of 490 years. We are told its beginning point, and we are told an end point in the middle of the 70th week. We are told those facts. Those are incredible facts. That is a prophecy that is incredibly specific. The exact period of time, the starting point, and the ending point. You can't be an error. You, you can't miss this one. Everyone knows that Jesus Christ died at the Passover in approximately 30 A.D. And you just 
You know, that's the end point in the mid, that's 486 years after the prophecy began. And what was to start the prophecy? Verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem, the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, which was given by Cyrus the Persian, and it's in your Bible several times, and it's in history, that the Jews were allowed to go back from their captivity in Babylon to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and the temple. From that commandment, you could start counting the days and the years that until Messiah would come. And the Jews knew it. The Jews have in their writings their great disappointment because the Messiah, in their opinion, did not come in the early part of the first century. But he did come. They just missed him. Jesus Christ did come. Why did John the Baptist arrive on the scene preaching the message, the time is fulfilled? Do you remember when in the gospel it just says that over and over? The time is fulfilled. What time was fulfilled? He knew that he was at the 483rd year, the beginning of the 70th week, because there were 69 weeks until Messiah the Prince would be announced to Israel, and then he would die in the middle of that 70th week, three and a half years after he was announced to Israel. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. This prophecy was fulfilled in 33 A.D. when Jesus Christ was cut off in the midst of the week. I don't care if Daniel was written in 160 B.C. It proves that God wrote the book of Daniel. But it wasn't written in 160. It was written when it says it was by numerous proofs. There's so many proofs, brethren. You don't really care about the proofs. The Dead Sea Scrolls have been found in a cave in 1947. We don't care because it didn't change the Word of God a bit. You know, the only reason we care about the Dead Sea Scrolls is because the Dead Sea Scrolls were written in the 2nd century B.C., and they had a Daniel intact and complete, just like you have in your Bibles, which shows that it was at least 160 B.C. when Daniel wrote, according to the Dead Sea Scrolls. But there is a Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures called the Septuagint that's dated from around 250, which they all admit. A Greek translation of the Old Testament around 250 B.C., and guess what it includes? The book of Daniel. Josephus was entirely confident and wrote in his history that the book of Daniel was shown to Alexander the Great in 331 B.C. because it speaks of Alexander the Great. Jewish tradition, which is what God used to keep the word of God under the Old Testament, knows that there was a Daniel in 450 B.C. Ezekiel the prophet, admitted by everyone to have been written in 450 B.C., makes reference to Daniel twice in chapter 14. In 456 B.C., Cyrus the Persian took over the city of Babylon and told the Jews to go back and rebuild their temple. You take 456 and add to it the 33 years, and you come to the four, you get 480-some years when Jesus Christ was crucified. It is documented, it is precise, it is easy to prove that from Cyrus the Persian until Messiah the Prince was 483 years when John the Baptist presented him to the nation, and then three and a half years later, he was crucified at the time of Passover. This prophecy was written, even skeptics admit, in 160 B.C. It can be shown that it was 450, and it prophesied of Jesus Christ and being cut off in the midst of the week. And what would happen? It describes the the sacrifice, the sacrificial system of the Jews ending. It describes Messiah being cut off. It describes another prince coming that would bring a war against Jerusalem and desolate the city, which Titus did. A fantastic prophecy. Oh, they've done all sorts of things to try to get around it. There's There's Aramaic in the book of Daniel. It's not all in Hebrew. And so wherever they have found Aramaic, they've said that that Aramaic wasn't used until right around the time of Christ. Then the the passage we looked at last Sunday night, Daniel chapter 3, had three instruments in it that they said were Greek instruments that couldn't have been known before 100 B.C. But then they keep digging. They just keep digging over there, and they shouldn't dig. Because every time they dig, they keep coming up with new musical instruments that came from Persia called a sackbut. Oh. That hurt them so bad. It hurt bad when they found a sackbut from Persia that the Babylonians used and called a sackbut in 450 B.C. 
and to find out that there was an imperial form of Arabic that was used in the writings of Babylon long before the Greek Empire. And so Daniel very well had language that was common in his day. And would he have written in imperial Arabic since he was sitting in the gate of the king? It goes on and on. It goes on and on. I can't preach it all to you or tell you about all of it. It'll be all in a a massive outline. And I'm putting links into my outline now. Links to websites where you can go to websites and read about archaeological digs. And the only reason I'm doing it is because we want to establish by God's method that God's word is true. He did prophesy a 490-year prophecy that was fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Daniel chapter 2. I want to show you Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was the greatest general this world's ever seen, and God made him that way. God enabled a man with a very small army to conquer the known world. He, He had North Africa, all the Middle East... Italy, Italy, uh, Italy, Turkey, Greece, that part we call Asia Minor in the times of the New Testament, all the way to India. And brethren, as I said to some some of my family last night, he didn't have cruise missiles. He didn't have smart bombs. He didn't have B-1s or F-14s. He had horses. And he had the Lord God blessing him. He would take on armies sometimes outnumbered 20 to 1. It didn't matter to him. He was so fast. And God was with him. He was so ferocious, he could defeat them. They didn't know where he was. The Bible presents him as a leopard with the four wings of an eagle. He approached Jerusalem in 332 B.C. according to Josephus. Josephus writes that he approached the city of Jerusalem. The priests of Jerusalem went out to him with the book of Daniel. They took to him the book of Daniel and said, We knew that you were coming because look what it says about you. And he didn't even have to read it, he said. As he saw these priests approaching him in their robes, he said, I saw you in a vision before I began my conquest because it is your God that has enabled me to accomplish all that I have. And he spared their city and their religion. He did not do that anywhere else. Now that is not in the Bible. But I'll tell you what is in the Bible, that the book of Daniel had enough to say about Alexander the Great that he couldn't have missed it. It tells him that he was going to be in charge of the Greek Empire. It also told him he was going to die in the prime of life and have to leave his empire to four generals underneath him because he didn't have a son. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 30. Watch this. We don't have time to go through it in detail, but I'm going to give you the verses. This deserves a study of its own. Daniel is seeing the image. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. The dream had an image that had four different medals in it. Those four different medals presented the four empires that that were going to come. Nebuchadnezzar was the Babylonian Empire, the head of gold. Then there was silver for the Medes and the Persians. Then there was brass for the Greek Empire. And then there was iron for the Roman Empire. Can you believe that? Daniel, describing the Roman Empire as being an empire of iron in 450 B.C. Everyone knows that Rome conquered the world in iron-shod boots and that it was an empire of iron. But how could you know that in 500 B.C.? Because God described it. Look at verse 33. His legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. In Daniel chapter 2. Let's come over from Daniel chapter 2. That just mentions the four empires there. Chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Here the four empires are like like four beasts. See verse 3 and four great beasts. There have been four great empires in the world. Babylonian. Medo-Persian, Greek, and Roman. And there hasn't been an empire since the Romans because Jesus Christ has his empire. His empire is called the kingdom of heaven. He sits at the right hand of God, breaking the nations in pieces with a rod of iron. Instead of there being one empire, there's now, what is the number? 275 little pieces called nations around the world because Jesus Christ is breaking them in pieces just like the Bible says he would. But it said that before 100 A.D., when the book of Revelation was written. It said it in Psalm 2 as to what would happen when Jesus Christ ascended up on high. There's the four beasts, verse 3 of Daniel chapter 7. The first was like a lion. It's Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, it's so simple to know that that's Nebuchadnezzar. All you have to do is read it, and all you have to do is compare it to chapter 2. Verse 5, and behold, another beast. That's like a bear. That was the Medo-Persian Empire. But look at verse 6. After this I beheld, and lo, another, like a leopard, which had upon it the back of four wings of a fowl. 
The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. That is Alexander the Great's Greek Empire. He was great. He was fast. He conquered the world at 30. This is what we know about Alexander the Great if you read a history book. At 30, he wept because he didn't have any more worlds to conquer. He started at 20. He he, He had the world from Spain to India at the age of 30. And he wept because he had no more worlds to conquer, but he died at 33 years of age. He didn't have a son, and so was given to his four generals, those are the four heads, and dominion was given to the Greek Empire. That's chapter 7, verse 6. Look at chapter 8. Here we have just two kingdoms in this prophecy. Verse 3 describes a ram which had two horns. That one horn stands for the Medes, one horn stands for the Persians. The Persians came up after the Medes, just like it says. This ram pushed all over the place. But then in verse 5, I was considering, and an he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth. Now, where did Alexander the Great come from? He was a Macedonian. Comes from what we would call Greece today. He came from the west, which is west of the uh, Persian Empire. The Persian Empire is what we, what we would call Iran or Iraq. Came from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground. Moving so fast, he didn't have to touch the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. There's Alexander the Great. And he came to the ram that had two horns. That's the Medo-Persians, which I had seen standing before the river, and ran unto him in the fury of his power. And I saw him come close unto the ram, and he was moved with choler against him. There's where cholerics come from. And smote the ram and brake his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and stamped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Therefore the he-goat, this is Alexander the Great, waxed very great. And when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. Notice, Alexander the Great, when he was strong, died an untimely death, and all the world knows this. It's in every history book. He had his, nation, his empire was divided up to four generals in the four points of the compass. And two of them, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, the Ptolemies ruled Egypt, the Seleucids, Syria, and Israel was right in between. And that's why you've got so much detail in here, because it then goes on to describe a little horn that came out of the Seleucids named Antiochus Epiphanes, which the whole world knows about. In the wars that the Seleucids fought against the Ptolemies of Egypt, Israel was right in the middle. And so they were constantly being violated. And that's the rest of Daniel chapter 8. But notice, before we leave Daniel chapter 8, it tells us the fulfillment. Once in a while, God just goes ahead and tells you so that you won't have to guess. If you think I'm making anything up in the first few verses, well, then we come over to verse 20. Look at this. Do you you like the Lord for doing this once in a while? Amen. I do. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 20. The ram which thou sawest having two horns are the kings of Media and Persia. And the rough goat is the king of Grecia. Now who knew about the Greek empire in the days of Babylon? Look at verse 1. When was this chapter written? In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. Belshazzar was a king of Babylon. What's he doing talking about the kings of Media and Persia? What's he doing talking about the king of Greece? There was no Greece for a couple hundred years. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. The fulfillment is so simple and so easy to understand. Verse 21, the rough goat is the king of Grecia, and the great horn that is between his eyes is the... Oh, isn't that precious? It's the first king. It's Alexander the Great. It's so wonderful. Written long before it ever happened. Alexander the Great. Prophesied about before he was ever born. Look at chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. Also I, in the first year of Darius the Mede, verse 1, even I stood to confirm and to strengthen him, and now I will show thee the truth. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia. He knew how many more kings would be in Persia. And yet the fourth shall be far richer than they all, Xerxes. And by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Grecia. And a mighty king shall stand up that shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. That's Alexander the Great, did anything he wanted to, wept because he didn't have any other worlds to conquer. And when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken and shall be divided toward the four winds of heaven and not to his posterity, because he didn't have a son, nor according to his dominion which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up 
even for others beside those. And if you keep on reading here, whenever it says the king of the north against the king of the south, that's the Seleucids against the Ptolemies, two of his generals and their successors, Israel's in between. Cleopatra is in Daniel chapter 11, as clear as the noonday sun. Mark Antony is in there. And the naval battles that eventually resulted in the Roman Empire, replacing the Greek Empire in 30 B.C., all of it written in 450 B.C. And And I'm rushing fast because this is not my purpose this morning to spend details. Listen, brethren, I've got 23 proofs that the Bible's the Word of God. And we're only on number one. And number one gets me so excited, I'm sweating up here like I'm in an athletic contest. But it's wonderful. Amen. Fulfilled prophecies, and there's not just five, there's not just ten. You've got to pick your favorites. I've got mine. You've got to pick your favorites. The Bible is true. Do you think Muhammad dared hang himself out in the Koran? There is no prophecy in the Koran. The Book of Mormon doesn't have prophecies. You can't prophesy. When, you're not, when God isn't showing you the future because you're going to expose yourself as a liar. And your Bible is full of it. And Daniel's a book that we want to know and to remember. And I have preached through Daniel verse by verse, and it is on tapes. Brethren, there's so many more. Did you know that the city of Babylon at the time that Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel were written, the city of Babylon was the greatest city on earth? That's right. it, it, it called itself a queen that shall sit forever. Listen, when you have a city... There was 24 miles on a side, 24 miles on a side, that's 496 square miles. It has a wall 75 feet, it has a wall 300 feet high, 75 feet wide that could handle six chariots abreast, and that wall was doubled, it had a double wall, with a bare space of ground in between it, 300 feet high, that's 30 stories in modern terminology, 75 feet wide, doubled. Through it flowed the river Euphrates. It had an unlimited water supply. And what was it known for as one of the wonders of the world? What did Babylon have? The hanging gardens could supply you all the food. You could withstand a siege forever. It, It was an impregnable city. It ruled the earth. Nebuchadnezzar was its head of gold. It ruled the earth. And it fell in one night when God determined that it was going to fall because he sent Cyrus the Persian and Darius the Mede with engineers that diverted the rivers of the Euphrates out into the desert. They marched their army through the riverbank, under the walls of that city, into the city. They took it without losing a man. And all the while, Belshazzar was in a great big party using the vessels of God that he had taken from Jerusalem and was blaspheming the God of Israel. That's when that arm came out on the wall and wrote. And Belshazzar stained his royal tunic and, and asked his wife what he was going to do. And his wife said, Don't you remember your father had a man in this kingdom that could interpret dreams? And they sent for Daniel, and Daniel came in and looked over at that wall and was greatly troubled. And he turned to Belshazzar and he said, The kingdom's been found wanting. It's over tonight. Amen. And that night, Belshazzar was slain. Right. And the kingdom passed to Darius the Mede. And do you know what, brethren? There's whole chapters about what I just described. Yes, there are chapters telling you about the diversion... Any history book will tell you how Babylon fell. The Bible in Isaiah. Now, Isaiah was written 200 years before Daniel. Isaiah wrote it in great detail. There are chapters, 44, 45, 46, that talk. Isaiah 45, turn to it. You're just saying he's blowing smoke. Oh, no. No smoke. Isaiah 45. How in the world can you write a prophecy when Babylon's the greatest city in the earth and say that it's going to be taken in one night? How can you do that? Unless the Lord's with you. When it's the greatest city and then say it's going to be destroyed and it will never be rebuilt. Can you find Babylon today on a map? What if we took you to the place in a four-wheel drive vehicle? Could you find it? All you'd find are some heaps and mounds of sand. Listen, the city was 496 square miles with intersecting streets at every mile, 24 times crossing the river Euphrates with bridges. It was an incredible city, reviewed by numerous historians, Herodotus and others that saw it and wrote about it, wrote its dimensions, measured it. But anyway, look look at Isaiah 44, the last verse. That saith of Cyrus. Now, brethren, Isaiah was written in six... Isaiah tells you when he wrote. All you have to do is go to the first chapter, first verse. He tells you. It's 600 B.C. It's 200 years before Cyrus. It's before Babylon took the Jews captive. That saith of Cyrus. He's using a name. Brethren, he's using the man's name. That saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, 
and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Look at verse 1 of the next chapter. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings, to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. They had gate. Now listen, any intelligent city that had a river flowing through it would have a gate that went down into the water so that boats couldn't come through, right? Uh, yes, they had them. Any access from that river within the city walls of, of Babylon were restricted also by gates. But are you reading the Bible with me? Are you reading with me? I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. These, this is just some of the verses about, look at verse 27. That saith to the deep, this is chapter 44, I'm sorry. Chapter 44, verse 27. God says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up thy rivers. If you read all these accounts, you will find out that God was going to dry up a river for Darius the Mede, by his engineers, to take his army into that city and take the city of Babylon in one night. And it happened. And this was written 200 years before. This was written 150 years before Cyrus was conceived. And he's called by name. And if you, if you read down through these chapters, you will find out that he is referred to as one of God's prophecies that he called him by name. And do you remember last Sunday when I was giving you all the verses where God said, can you declare the things that are going to come to pass like I can? Do you remember that all those references were Isaiah 41, 42, 44, 46, and 48? And do you know who they're primarily referring to? This fantastic event. The taking of the city of Babylon by Cyrus the Persian and Darius the Mede. And he calls them by name before he was born. I would have loved to have been Daniel in the court of Cyrus the Persian and said, O king, live forever. Could I have devotions this morning with you and bring out the book of Isaiah and show him Isaiah 44 and 45 where God called him by name and told him how he would take the city of Babylon. Do you know why I took so much time going over that? That was an impregnable city that no no one could have forecast that it was going to be destroyed, never to be rebuilt again. Impossible. The greatest city on earth told how it was going to happen and by whom it was going to happen 200 years before it happened. And we could go on to city after city. We don't read Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel very much because you know what? Most of it's prophecies about things like this. There's the book of Nahum. What's the book of Nahum about? The destruction of the city of Nineveh, one of the great cities of earth. How about the city of Tyre? Several chapters in Ezekiel dedicated to the destruction of the city of Tyre. Tyre sat just like Babylon, a great port on the Mediterranean Sea. Do you know what the prophecy says? Ezekiel chapter 24 through 28, it says that Tyre will be scraped bare as a rock for fishermen to dry their nets on it. A great city, a huge city, very rich city, Tyre. Alexander, Nebuchadnezzar first destroyed the city of Tyre. When Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to the city of Tyre, they went out to an island off the coast of Syria there into the Mediterranean Sea and rebuilt their city on an island. Alexander the Great came in 332 B.C., and that city was way out there, and they would not submit to him because they thought they were safe. He had his engineers. This is in in any history book you want to read about about the work of Alexander the Great. He hauled every piece of rubble from the destroyed city of Tyre that Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed and used it to build a one-half mile wide causeway out to that city, and he leveled it. Guess what happened to the old city of Tyre that existed in the days of Ezekiel? It was scraped like the top of a rock, and if you were to go there today, there are fisher nets spread out on that rock, drying from fishermen in the Mediterranean Sea. There's whole chapters given to us in Ezekiel to tell us about that. Why did God tell us all those things? So that when they come to pass... And when we in the year 2001 look back and read about them, we can know he is God and there is no other. And the Bible is his book and it's not the Koran. Don't you let what's coming out of Washington and out of NBC, ABC, CBS, and CNN tell you that the Koran's another holy book just like the Bible. The Koran isn't like the Bible at all. The Bible is God's word. The number of prophecies in it are enormous. Brethren, Even skeptics know that the Old Testament was written 
at least a couple centuries B.C. The personal man, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, is proven from his secular history and from the New Testament. The number of prophecies of the Old Testament fulfilled in the New are enormous about the details of the life of Jesus of Nazareth, his birthplace, that he was be born of a virgin, how he would die, his hands being pierced, his feet being pierced. Pilate wrote in the Annals of Pilate about his hands and feet being pierced. He wrote about his miracles. There is incredible documentation to the existence of Jesus Christ of Nazareth and the fulfillment of all those Old Testament prophecies in the New Testament. So what's the first great proof that God wrote the Bible? Which is a whole field of study if you ever wanted to get into it. All you need to do is pick a few of your favorites. Fulfilled prophecy. Who can write things before they come to pass and bring them to pass exactly as written but God? And don't let anyone take away the word of God from you. What we have done this morning is is to do what 1 Thessalonians 5.21 commands us to do. Prove all things. Now there's much, 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 much more proof, but I've given you a few and to remember that prophecy was given to confirm the integrity of God and his power, not for us to speculate about the future. The word of God is true. When you open this book and you find advice in this book about your marriage, about the way you work on the job, about how this church ought to worship God, it is not the words of men. It is the word of God. It is the word of God the one who invented marriage, the one who invented employment relationships, and the one who formed the New Testament church told us how we ought to worship him. And it's the word of God, so we follow it as closely as we can. We are Bible Christians. Never be moved off that fact. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word and establish your faith in the word of God that he's given us. Amen.